Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Ali Winston. He is an independent reporter covering criminal justice, privacy, and surveillance. His work has been rewarded with several awards, including the George Polk Award for Local Reporting in 2017. Ali is a graduate of the University of Chicago and the University of California, Berkeley. He lives in New York City. His new book is titled, The Rioters Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. The book traces the history of Oakland since its inception through the eyes of the city's police department. Through the Palmer raids, McCarthyism, the civil rights struggle, through the Black Panthers, and crack eras to Oakland's present-day revival. I'm joined by 15 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, I'm Ezra Griffith, uh, class of 63, and I spent my career in academic psychiatry at Yale. Okay, Anne. Uh, I am Anne, uh, uh, class of 63, uh, mostly retired psychotherapist. I spent many years uh, in the Bay Area, and so this book is very close to my heart. Uh, I actually lived in Oakland for many years. Okay, Peter Lissavoy. Yes, I'm, I'm an editor and writer, and uh, I also lived in Oakland in the 70s, and one of my best friends was a criminal defense lawyer there, has continued to be a criminal defense lawyer in Oakland all these years, so I used to hear stories about the cops in Oakland from him. What was his name? What was his name? Dennis Roberts. Dennis Dennis Roberts. I've he, seen it written, he, but I never he met him. He, he had an office in Jack London Square. And uh, he uh, he dealt with the cops uh, a lot. His his uh, his practice uh, took him in that direction and and uh, had a particular antipathy to the Oakland cops. Okay. Especially in the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people share that. Cindy. Yes. Um, hello, um, I'm Cindy Wardle, Allison Wardle. And um, I live in Italy. And I'm kind of curious about uh, why Ali is also is in Istanbul. I lived in, um, in Iskenderun for two mm -hmm. years as a Peace Corps volunteer from six, 1963 to 65. And so I have a kind of a connection to Turkey. Yeah. Hey, Liz. Hi, I'm Liz Mori. I'm also class of 63. I'm currently living in the uh, DC area, but I'm a Californian. SoCal, not NoCal. Uh, I was recently in Oakland for several days because I was attending the national gathering of the Coming to the Table group, which is now sponsored by Arjoy. And uh, I'm very interested in what you're going to say. I'm Jeff Fox. You all know me. Ali and I have known each other for years. So all I'll say is I am now back in Spain and ready to get back to work after after a long interruption for a visit to the to the states. Okay, Jerry. Uh, Jerry Secundi. I live in Pasadena, California. A lawyer, environmental lawyer, a Peace Corps, and very depressed this morning with the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John. Hi, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I 
editing and writing for a number of years, class of 63. And uh, I guess you probably, I don't know if you knew Chauncey Bailey, but I knew Chauncey Bailey, uh, wow. who got uh, murdered in Oakland, one of the first journalists to get murdered in the United States in quite a while. That happened, I think, in 2007. Yeah, 2007. It was a year before I moved, but I know the reporters that did the work back on him and got the guys who did it charged, convicted, and sent to prison for life. Yeah. The big That was a huge deal. And mm -hmm. we, deal, we deal with it in riders, but I'll get into that. Okay. That's, very, that's quite something. George. George Jones, class of 63. Like Jerry, I am quite depressed by the Supreme Court's decision, and I'm continue to ask the question, does equal protection mean the same as equal treatment? I just don't think it does. David Offmer uh, <clears throat> grew up in Central and South America and, uh, and worked for public television in New York City and, and Philadelphia, where uh, we currently live. I, too, was depressed by the Supreme Court's decision, but I can't help but think that those guys are smart enough to figure out a workaround that's going to be acceptable to all of us. Um, Hampton Howell, 63, um, from New York and Boston, not even ha uh, approximately halfway retired clinical psychologist. I see maybe four people four days a week. Okay, great. What a roster. Dorothy. Um, I, uh, class of 63, uh, live in Massachusetts and Belmont. Uh, spent lived 25 years in Harlem, so I have lots of. I, I really basically grew up in Harlem after I left Harvard, and uh, spent my professional life uh, with uh, developing opportunities for low-income young people to rebuild their communities and their lives through youth build, and that has been a wonderful thing. My connection with Oakland, one of my godsons, Camlo Looper lives there and is working on affordable housing. His father was Leroy Looper, very active in uh, the 60s and 70s in California. Ali, welcome. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Certainly. Thank you all so much for having me. Um, Ali Winston, I'm born in California, actually, in 84. Uh, my father was a Harvard man, class of 67. So a little bit younger than you all. Um, he's no longer with us, passed in 2015. Um, Edward Perry Winston was his name. His sister, um, Mary Winston, went to Radcliffe as well, um, 68 or 69 where it was her class. And um, I went to University of Chicago, guilty as charged. Um, I'm not one of you all. But um, I grew up in New York City and we moved, to, we moved to Manhattan when I was two or one. So for all intents and purposes, I'm a New Yorker. Um, and I moved out to California in 2008. Um, I'd become a reporter shortly after graduating from U Chicago in 06. Was a history major, but I was an impatient history major. I didn't want to wait to let the narrative establish itself. So I decided to become a reporter and do deal with the present um, on the day to day and just try not to be a house cat, try to be outside and, you know, being a little bit more involved in courts, politics, the streets, whatever happened. I figured out I was good at criminal justice um, reporting. I wanted to do more of it than the general assignment stuff I was doing in Jersey City, where I was had my first job in Newark, across the river, and then uh, in New York City. And you know, the recession was about to hit. You kind of see the writing on the wall. So in 2008, January 2008, I applied to graduate schools to study um, investigative reporting. 
And there was only really one program I was going to go to, and that was to Cal, to UC Berkeley, where there was a guy named Lowell Bergman who taught uh, investigative reporting out there and ran a program that was quite well endowed. And um, it was a two-year program, so I moved out to the Bay Area then. And almost immediately, I started engaging with the Oakland Police Department. I sniffed around for stories that were interesting and kind of under the beaten track. And I was told several times, hey, look, there's this police department here. They've been under court oversight for five, six years. It's not going anywhere. And they're still they're killing a ton of people. This journalist just got knocked off last year, Chauncey Bailey, for investigating a basically a, a cult, um, really violent, nasty cult, your black Muslim bakery. And I started digging into the department and and poking around issues of law enforcement. And over the years, um, you know, you go from covering the daily ins and outs of the courts and city hall and um, and the kind of if it bleeds, it leads stories. And then over time, I realized that there was a much, much, much deeper story in Oakland about law enforcement, modern law enforcement, how it became kind of the, how it evolved into the current shape that it holds, which I don't think anybody's happy with, cops or civilians or DAs or politicians. And in many ways, Oakland kind of trended ahead of the country throughout the 20th century and 21st century. And um, I think that the, my writing partner and I, Darwin Bond Graham, we realized maybe about in 2015 or 16 that there was a much bigger narrative here than just our kind of if it lee you know our scandal of the week scandal of the um of the month story and that's when we started rattling around the idea to write a book about this stuff um and kind of explain how a really intransigent um brutal police culture evolved um what sort of impact it had on the city how the city pushed back on it and really um, how that story informs the broader cultural sweep of the United States, particularly um, the urban United's, the U urban US. I mean, I wouldn't say that this is a book about like Idaho or Montana or what have you, but that's the short of it. And I'm open to whatever sort of questions you wanna bounce off me or, you know, fastballs, curveballs, knuckleballs, brushbacks, mm -hmm. all. Well, what have you learned about surveillance? My Tons. Um, I actually worked um, on parallel tracks. There were kind of several different interests of mine um, over the years in reporting. Um, law, you know, law enforcement and surveillance were kind of two separate things that I reported on in parallel tracks. And then over time, local and surveillance issue was more of a federal issue um, mm -hmm. at first, like. And the war on after the you know the invasion of Iraq and the you know advent of the war on terror, the feds dumped hundreds of millions of dollars into building out these networks, surveillance camera, um, license plate reader networks around the U.S. They put money into developing sensors on the border, um, to building out um, artificial early artificial intelligence programs to predict at first battlefield casualties, and then over time they became they were adapted by private companies founded by academics that were given these government grants to predict where crime would take place and who would be most likely to commit crimes, the minority report sort of thing. And over time, those things merged because the kind of counterterrorism mission that law enforcement was given after 9-11 really meant an all crimes brief. And they had so much money 
sloshing around and they had this ideology that you know we need to be able to get ahead of things before they happen um we need to be able to predict who will radicalize who will become a criminal um ahead of time um i really saw the evolution of that over the 2000s and the 2010s and oakland actually had a huge dust up over a um, municipal surveillance center that they wanted to build circa 2016 13 excuse me it evolved from a uh, kind of port specific security program that had federal money behind it and then over the years it actually kind of quietly metastasized to incorporate the entire city they were going to merge instead of just the cameras on the perimeter of the port of oakland they were going to merge those cameras with freeway cameras housing project cameras cameras in the public school gunshot detectors license plate readers they were going to basically establish a panopticon in oakland and there was a massive outcry about that um and it was eventually like curtailed back to the original shape of the problem excuse me the original shape of the, of the um the project and oakland set up a trailblazing um, oversight committee for surveillance technology in the city government that actually served as a model for several other cities around the country including cambridge um, and i believe boston might have a, a um, parallel committee as well at this point but yeah i learned a lot about it and it also goes back to the surveillance of not just the black panther party which is very well known um and you all live that history i did i certainly didn't i wasn't alive then but it also goes back we learned a tremendous amount about how the alameda da the district attorney's office in alameda where um earl warren came out of and ed meese um but in as early as the 1930s they were known as some of the most sophisticated um practitioners of surveillance of political surveillance in the country and they had very, very substantive files going back on, you know, communist activists, anarchists, um, subversives, and things like that, all the way to the 1910s. Well, tell us about a little about some of the characters in your book. Uh, there's this, you have an informer, informant who was pretty essential, as I recall, right? Yes, the um, kind of the way that our book opens up is there was a, a scandal um, that is parallel to the Rampart scandal in Los Angeles, fictionalized in a film called Training Day with Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke in 1999 or 2000. And um, the, the scandal in Oakland involved a young cop named Keith Batt, who was from, who is from Sebastopol in Northern California, which is about an hour and a half, maybe north of Oakland, very nice, pleasant town on the Russian River, worlds away from the East Bay, right? And worlds away from the heart of the East Bay. He joins, um, finishes top of his class, um, is really gung-ho, looking forward to being a cop, very ethical guy, came out of, um, I think, the criminal justice program at Sacramento State um, University, Cal State Sacramento. And within a few, you know, he was assigned to a field training unit for his first six months on the job when he's a probationary cop, a rookie, so you can be around and learn the ropes um, from your FTO. He was given a guy named Keith Bat. Uh, excuse me, not Keith Bat. He was given a Chuck Mabadang, um, Clarence Mabadang, as his FTO. And Chuck was unbeknownst. What's that field training? What? What's that? FTO is what? Field training. That's what is that? No, that's Chuck Mabadang. Field training officer? I don't know. Field training officer. 
that's a field training officer for um, my apologies to, to skip through that. An FTO is your supervisor during your um, probationary period as a cop. It's the guy who's assigned to essentially make sure you get through your first six months on the job without killing someone or beating someone up or committing um, committing a crime or washing out of the program. And they essentially determine whether or not you get the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And um, unbeknownst to Keith, uh, Chuck was a extremely aggressive cop um, who had been decertified as a trainer by the previous police chief, but brought back because he was popular in the locker room. He was well-regarded, um, had received several medals, but he and a group of other officers, um, including Matt Hornung and Jude Siapno and Frank Vasquez, were part of a little clique of officers known as the Riders in West Oakland. And they were proactive, quote unquote, cops who were fulfilling the mayor of Oakland's um, crime suppression mission at the time. Jerry Brown was the mayor, the, uh, current, the former, then future governor of California who was running a Rudy Giuliani style zero tolerance program. And they went out and they would basically kidnap people off the streets. They would shake them down, illegally search them for drugs, um, beat anybody who blinked at them the wrong, who looked at them the wrong way, who ran especially. Um, and Keith within two weeks on the job witnessed several people being tortured beaten, falsely arrested. He had to falsify paperwork um, for drug possession. He put cases on people who didn't have anything on them. Um, he saw somebody get beaten on the soles of their feet so, so badly they couldn't walk. Um, he saw somebody get a can of pepper spray emptied into their mouth and eyes um, for merely talking back. Um, and after two weeks, he, he cracked. He couldn't, he couldn't take it. And he went in and um, he basically reported these guys up to internal affairs and that opened a, an entire can of worms leading to criminal charges, um, two hung juries, unfortunately. And um, that was actually the case that led to Oakland PD being put under court oversight because there are such systematic violations of the law of people's civil rights um, that the federal court at the time headed by a, um, a very illustrious judge named Felton Henderson, um, a Berkeley Law graduate. Um, I believe he was a Carter appointee, a very, um, very renowned African-American judge in the Northern District of California. Um, he set them under a consent decree in 2003 that the federal government did not participate in. This was brought by private attorneys because this is right at the transition between the Bush administration, between Clinton and Bush II. So there was no interest from the Republicans in doing any sort of police oversight or reform. And the Clinton folks were burnishing their resumes for the private sector. So that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but that's actually one of the reasons why the reforms have, have taken o OPD further ahead of many police departments in the country. Um, it's a very complicated answer, but those are some of the characters in there. Keith is really important. We also have people like Earl Warren's in our book. Um, we delve into his history. We deal with Bobby Seale and uh, Huey Newton from the Black Panther Party. Um, the police chief at the time, Charles Gain, um, who was a reform-minded police chief in the 60s and 70s, um, 
who was a white Oaklander. His families were from Texas. They were Dust Bowl migrants. And he very early in the game tried to push the police department further forward. We deal with Elihu Harris, with Lionel Wilson, the, you know, African-American mayors of Oakland who really struggled to try and put the city back on its feet during a period of very damaging white flight, deindustrialization, um, huge heroin um, influx, crack cocaine as well, go all the way up to the present. Um, so we deal with, you know, we deal with Jerry Brown quite a bit. Um, Richard Ward, some of the, the law enforcement names might not mean a lot to you, but there's a very broad, broad spray of characters in here. Uh, uh, George. So I was in the Bay Area in the late 60s, and one of the prevailing, I shouldn't say prevailing, one of the hypotheses offered with regard to the violence of the Oakland police, which was well known even then, mm -hmm. was that had to do with the way that the, the officers were recruited that they recruited a lot of ex-military people, guys who came back from Vietnam and were mustered out in Alameda and went basically from the battleground to the police force. Is mm -hmm. there any any relevance to that, that, that idea? Yes, there is. That's 100%. First of all, that's accurate. Um, second of all, that predates the 60s. That goes back to the 1940s. So um, I'm going to start a little bit broader and then drill back down. So the Oakland Police Department is very similar to the Los Angeles Police Department. It has, West Coast policing is very different than the East, than East Coast policing. It's less of a civil service job and it's far more power military. It is, there are, as some, as you all may know, the West Coast is basically an armory. Like there are bases up and down the coast from San Diego all the way to SeaTac. And in a way that the East Coast is, is not, it's not built out like that. And the West Coast population boom also coincided with World War II and the Cold War. Um, so there's always been more of a military influence on society out there that directly translates to law enforcement because a lot of reserve people who are cop, people who go into, they serve in the military, they come out, they're law enforcement, they enlist as they stay in as a reservist, they go back in and do their duty. I have a few sources. One of my guys, one of my very good sources, um, he kept going back in as a Green Beret, as a reservist, like this past 10, 15 years. And I will say that it, it definitely, his military service definitely did not leave him um, suitable to serve as a police officer. <laughs> but um, that's another story for another time. The historic guys are very interesting because LAPD um, after the 1940s, after William Parker came in as chief, cleaned out the kind of graft influence that was present and the way <clears throat> which the police would kind of just kind of glom off people and kind of take bribes and being served, uh, being kind of hawked to organized crime. Oakland PD had a similar cleanup in the 1930s. Earl Warren was the guy that did that. Um, and in the 40s, that's when the West Coast's African-American population, the bulk of them came in um, on to work in the war industries. They came up on the rail railways, um, Southern Pacific, Union Pacific, to work in war industries. As a result, and the initials, like initially the city fathers in Oakland and Los Angeles thought these people would go home, right? They thought the African-American populations would go back down to Texas or Louisiana and they would, you know, once the war was over, they would leave. But you come out to California from the deep south and the Jim Crow South and why go back? You know, the money's here. It's a different society. You don't have Jim Crow laws ostensibly. Um, but very quickly, the, the, um, the powers that be, and Oakland was run by a very conservative family, the Nolans um, were, you know, 
the Nolans, I believe there was a senator. The father might have been a senator. Come again? The senator from Formosa. Yes, the senator from Formosa. Anti-communist too, stringent anti-communist. Oh, some background. Oakland was also a hotbed of KKK activity. Mm -hmm. It was run by the KKK essentially in the 1920s. There were Klan rallies in the Kaiser Center right by Lake Merritt, cross burnings on the hills um, in Montclair. Um, Richmond and San Francisco were similar. Los Angeles was similar. And the Klan in California um, back then was essentially run by cops up and down the state by Los Angeles sheriffs, LAPD, Alameda DA, Oakland PD, Alameda sheriffs. There's a lot about that in Riders in chapter four. Um, So (laughs) bottom line is 1940s come around, the African-Americans don't go home and the local powers that be say, okay, we need cops who know how to, we need people who know how to keep, who know how to keep black folk in line. They didn't use those words. They recruited Southerners straight off the base at Alameda, right? From the army base in West Oakland. They brought people and they wanted soldiers. They wanted people who were antagonistic towards them. And they, that's why in 1950, the California state legislature for the first time, I think that I've been able to, able to find in the country mounted an investigation, a legislature's investigation into civil rights abuses of African-Americans in Oakland, of African-Americans by their local police department. That was groundbreaking. Um, and in the rest of the 20th century and into the 21st century, the military influence is very pervasive in, um, in Oakland and is a big reason why there was such a gung-ho aggressive culture there. Um, it defined not just the police culture in the department was kind of defined at the sergeant level, the level of the field training officer and the sergeants. They were kind of the ones who transmitted the culture down the generations. And from throughout our research from like almost from the 1930s, 40s on, you can see that influence there. It's very prevalent. And the guy who ran, the cop who ran the um, Panther unit in the 60s, the intelligence unit, um, Lieutenant Brown, he actually did similar intelligence work in Vietnam and then trained on that. He trained other police departments, <clears throat> his methods to track the Panthers with you know examples that he learned in vietnam i think he might have been phoenix program or something like that i never lived in oakland but my office was in san francisco and I lived in pasadena so two or three times a month i would uh, fly into oakland and get on bart and mm-hmm. I would go to the fruitvale station i'm just curious i'm sure you're very familiar with what happened several years ago in fruitvale uh has that basically instituted any type of reform to the police department of oakland you mean the murder of Oscar Grant by Johannes by the Bark Cop? Yep. So that um, that incident um, on New Year's Day, two thousand nine, Oscar Grant was killed by a transit cop, um, and which is technically a different agency than OPD. However, the protests that happened um, that came about after you know in the weeks immediately following that, um, they were I was there for that. I covered those demonstrations. They were very 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 wild um and they were kind of they prefigured the black lives matter movement i guess the national upsurge um after the murder of uh, murders of uh, mike brown and eric garner and several others in 2014 by about five years and very quickly the um heard there were there was a lot of public pressure placed on the local prosecutors the alameda county district attorney to charge meserly and to arrest him um, for homicide and it took three weeks for that to happen. And in the meantime, there was, you know, 
rampant civil unrest in Oakland. And the police department in Oakland engaged in the sort of crowd control tactics that um, made them notorious in 2003 when they brutalized an anti-war march at the Port of Oakland and also in the 1960s. Um, they kind of went reverted back to type when they, um, when they dealt with the Oscar Grant demonstrations. And as a result of that, more, first of all, I started paying more attention to them and it, there was more of a cause to kind of look at the cops in the Oakland Police Department who had engaged in lethal shootings and non-lethal shootings as well. And there were several of them. Um, and that kind of set things on a path towards, there were a couple more social movements. Um, 2009, 10 um, was the student, up, there was a big student uprising in California against cuts to the education system from the UCs all the way down to the middle schools. And then there was also the Occupy movement in 2011 and 2012. The police department's response to all those movements was extremely violent, and there were frequent flyers, the cops who would kind of go out there and fire beanbags at people's heads and run them over with motorcycles and that sort of thing were frequent flyers, and it was very clear that they had not changed their policies at all, that they'd not learned anything from the years of um, court oversight and re alleged reforms that they were going through. I'd just like to ask Ali if uh, you faced any uh, harassment yourself by any of the KKK or cops or, or anybody else. Um, reporting on law enforcement is actually quite, this is going to sound very strange. It's quite relaxing for me. Um, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm used to them. I've been around um, cops for my, most of my professional career and maybe about 17 years. Um, I understand the ways in which cops kind of are formed as through institutions and you know you can kind of predict certain behaviors it's very rare that you're going to get a cop who will be aggressive towards a reporter um you know they'll be aggressive on the street but you know how to deal with that but in terms of like actual lethal threats i've had far more issues reporting on neo-nazis um which i've done quite a lot of in the past six years um that's actually that is not quite as I'm not comfortable with that I'll do it but um that's actually where the um the greater security threats come in there because those people have first of all less to lose um they don't have these huge pensions like a bunch of, you know cops have pensions if they get in trouble they get charged they'll lose their pension and if you go after a reporter it's not exactly um you know in here where I'm I'm in Turkey right now they throw reporters in jail if the day ends with a lie they don't care mm -hmm. It's different. It's different in the U.S. Um, thankfully, for now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I think it's it's always been more of an issue when I deal with extremists, and that I, that's something that I'm I've been very conscious about and tried to mitigate. What are you doing in Turkey now? So I'm half Turkish. Um, my mother is from Istanbul. Uh, my grandparents. I would I would come here every year, almost my entire life. Um, to visit friends and family and to kind of re-engage with the culture and make sure my Turkish doesn't degrade. Um, every now and then I do some work over here, but it's more this time because the election just happened and Erdogan is the current president, Recep type Erdogan is probably not gonna leave until he's dead. Um, he recently won re-election. Um, it's very interesting to kind of see how the society is starting to strain. Um, the lira has lost maybe 5% in value and six days mm. wow wow yeah 
So Americans, um, Americans don't really understand inflation. We whine about 9% when here, you know, you have 4% weekly inflation. Um, and this is, you know, the society's it's straining and there's, it's very interesting. There's a ton of Russians here, um, both tourists and Russians who have left Russia and are living here now. I see them in the neighborhoods. Um, it's, it's a very different um, environment than it was a couple of years back. Certainly before the pandemic, it was very, very. Um, Do you think the, the recent election was, quote, fair? Yes, it was fair. The votes were counted fairly. Um, if, if we're evaluating it as such, um, there were problems with the fact that the media is all controlled by the government now, and there's very little um, press freedom. There is intimidation. The most popular politician from the opposition party was um, Ekrem Imamoglu, the mayor of Istanbul, was blocked from running um, by the government for allegedly insulting the president, which <laughs> um, gives you an impression about how things are over here, but realistically, there are there's an entire generation that have not known life without er Erdogan. He was elected first in 2003. So they're 20 year olds, 21 year olds now who have known him their entire life. That's all they know. Also, there's a lot of fear about changing things. Um, the government is run by a party called the Justice and Development Party, AKP. And they have created an entire ecosystem of patronage of jobs and contracts, contract patronage around them that binds in at the local level throughout the country. So people realize that if they vote against that party, they might be voting against their own livelihood. Mm. So there's a lot of fear about that. So that's, and the election was a squeaker. I mean, it was maybe three percentage points of difference, but so there's half the country that loathes the guy. Um, but I, I don't think that, I mean, look, they don't have an electoral college. I would say their elections are fairer than ours. Mm. Uh -huh. Yeah, I was going to say, um, naturally, having been in the Peace Corps and uh, keeping up my connections with Turkey, mm -hmm. uh, I try to keep up with my old Turkish friends, but they will not talk about their political situation. And when they come to visit us here, it's it's a you can see what how this has affected them because. It, they talk to us in whispers, sort of looking from side to side out on our terrace, where you can see that the, 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 they are, they are, you know, Ataturkists, uh, Kemalists, and they are, they hate uh, Erdogan, but they will not talk about it. They won't write about it. Uh, on the telephone, no, it's just, how are you? We're fine. Yes, everything's great. And you can see that this just really has um, has changed Turkey. Yeah, it has. But the problem is the people who ran it beforehand were incompetent, and there was once there was a hundred percent annual annual inflation for the entire nineteen nineties. Yeah, it was a mess. Web of when Erdogan came in, and he actually, their government has put has done things that yeah. have been done before. They built hospitals, metro lines, new roads. Roads, um, you notice the social welfare system. I mean, this is the thing they've de delivered in the past, mm -hmm. but again, the past I want to say since about 2014, it's been a downhill slide and pretty precipitous at that. Is the, mm -hmm. is, is the government encouraging Russian immigration? They want money, they need foreign exchange because they're burning. I don't know the 
people who run the Turkish economy are insane. They don't believe in raising interest rates. Um, I think that there's some religious component of that, that high interest rates are usury. Um, but they burn through the dollar, they've burned through their foreign currency reserves already. So they need foreign currency. Therefore, there's a ton of money coming. There's a lot of property being bought in Turkey by Gulf Arabs, um, by Russians, by Europeans have been here for a long time. And that's kind of a known quantity that the English and the Germans and the Dutch, to a lesser extent, the Scandos will come here and retire. Um, I mean, there are entire towns in the south of Turkey that are German and English retirement homes, essentially. Um, but now the Russian money that's coming in, you know, the Russians, have, they're right across the Black Sea, they're neighbors. But um, I think that there's kind of a, there's two things going on. A lot of Russians want to leave Russia and don't want to be present for their society's kind of reckoning, moment of reckoning. It's pretty imminent, if not already happening in slow motion. And then the Turkish government needs foreign currency. But at the same time, this also creates massive inflation it leads to further inflation of housing prices and people get pressed out of the cities so it's it's a very it's a very very volatile situation that's hard to get your head around uh and yeah. um yeah hi i i just wanted to segue back to oakland for a minute yes. because sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay uh i'm also interested in turkey so i you're gonna have to come back and talk to us some more i think sure. absolutely <laughs> um yeah. One of the other things that I read in the paper today, which uh, disturbed me, um, in addition to the affirmative action decision, was about uh, San Francisco, which is in the middle of a fentanyl crisis, as you probably heard. Yep. And uh, apparently the governor uh, Newsom has just um, authorized um, state troopers to go in double the amount uh, that had been there previously. and also authorized what they call surges at night, meaning that people would, that, that the uh, officers would go unannounced into people's houses and search and seize, et cetera. What, what can be done? I mean, I feel as though this is a nightmare that's continuing and happening under my very eyes. What's, <laughs> what's your crystal ball and, and what do you ad advocate? So San Francisco is, um, there's a few things that happen with San Francisco, aside from the thing that goes around Fox News every five years or so when they decide to make it a football and, you know, the punching bag for their, for uh, their audience out there in middle America. Um, the broader context of it is that San Francisco is a far more conservative place than it was 10 years ago. Tech money brought in a lot of people from around the country and around the world who have very different ideas about how society should be and how cities should look and who should have the right to live in cities and who should not be in cities and how um, city government should function. So what you're seeing now, London Breed, the current mayor is a right winger backed by right wing tech libertarians, some of whom are quite far right. Um, the board of supervisors in San Francisco now has a number of people on there that that back that um, that worldview, and I'll be honest with you, the San Francisco Police Department is probably the one agency in the country that has never been under federal scrutiny or oversight, and probably deserves it the most. Um, they're very the I've reported on them for several years. The omerta in SFPD is incredible. 
It is an agency that is defined by legacy families, a lot of Irish and Italian legacies. Now more and more often you're seeing Asian cops too that have that tie back in. Um, and I'll be blunt, the you cannot separate Asian law enforcement in the Bay Area from the triads. It's woven in there. There's a case um, by, there's a federal case um, that targeted a triad who's, I can't remember his government name, but he went by the, the, the alias Shrimp Boy. And this case kind of peeled back the, um, the lid on that, on those ties. Um, there was an Oakland gang detective named Harry who, who actually pled guilty to taking a bribe from a guy, from a triad who committed a double homicide up in Mendocino and Harry covered up for him. But the bottom line is that case also had tendrils in San Francisco and Contra Costa, and it's just kind of the way it is. But SFPD has never been put under federal oversight, has never been put under a DOJ investigation. My view of that is that they are shielded from it by Pelosi, Feinstein, the San Francisco political machine, which is frankly, they run the DNC. They're, the, San Francisco is a very big player in democratic power politics. and. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's an accident that Kamala Harris, the former SFDA, is the vice president. Back to the present situation. The current, situ the current reaction by the governor to the fentanyl crisis, which frankly has been building for quite some time, and you do not see the similar, similar reaction to that um, kind of really horrible street situation in Philadelphia, where there's arguably a worse um, issue with addiction and vagrancy and frankly just despair on the streets than there is in San Francisco. Newsom is reacting to bad press and he's also reacting to a lot of very influential, very rich people yelling in his ear, do something Gavin, do something, do something. And he sent in the California Highway Patrol, the state troopers, the sort of pretextual stops and vehicle and walking stops that SFPD is barred from doing by city law. So essentially, it's an end run around San Francisco's guards on rail, their guardrails on police brutality and police overstep. Um, part of the issue is this. The local media in the Bay Area is dominated by the San Francisco Chronicle and the television stations, all of which are, are highly conservative and frankly back this approach. And they won't, the only way you can kind of crack that edifice is if you show the damage that those policies are are inflicting on people in the streets. There's some reporting that's starting to get at that, but I think that, you know, the, uh, people have to make noise about it. People have to say that this is really not, you know, this is not humane. This is not legal. This is kind of, this is, this is the sort of El Salvadorian type approach to deeply rude social problems that frankly is going to light more money on fire um, and achieve nothing right it doesn't put anybody in a home doesn't put anybody in a treatment program um, their idea reed's brilliant idea now is to involuntary hospital involuntarily hospitalize people which is medieval um, people who use drugs she's criminalized drug possession again um, in a way that is you know it's antithetical to the direction the rest of the country is moving in so I think it's worth the, it's important to see San Francisco, and you're starting to see tendrils of this in Oakland too, with the same right-wing influencer types, the social media personalities that are trying to push things in that direction. Um, 
And it's very different than the last time because crime has increased slightly. It's not nearly at the you know nadir that it was in 2006 or even 2012. But what's changed now is the kind of um, penetration of social media into our lives and the way that influences politics and kind of can push politicians to enact bad policy. And that happens at a faster pace now. Um, so I think that it's important to kind of establish counter narratives and also not um, seed ground to people who talk about, well, it feels like there's a lot of crime. No, no, well, is there? Is there not? Let's talk about things in terms of data. Let's not talk about things in terms of sentiments. Because if we talk about how people feel and what you don't like to feel or don't like to see on the street, I mean, that's the politics of the past seven, six years where you had a president who was throwing out racial invective left and right, and a lot of people followed him. And I think it's, it's really important to make clear that even if it's an African-American politician pushing these lines, that that also can, there can be racist elements to that too. I mean, she's, some of the things that she said about Salvadorian and Guatemalan drug dealers or alleged drug dealers or migrants is just, they're, they're abhorrent, but she gets away with it because, you know, she can then push back and say, well, you're a white man. You can't criticize me. Oh, you're Asian. You can't criticize me. And it's really like, it's, it's an, it's a wildly um, charged environment out there right now. But maybe more cities will copy them. Unfortunately, yeah. that's what it looks like the playbook is. I mean, yeah. Sanctus went out to San Francisco and filmed campaign ads last week. So I think that that's, um, that unfortunately is the, uh, the playbook mm -hmm. to kind of mm -hmm. push back against, to try and, there is a big hinge right now and it's black Asian tensions in cities. It's happening in Oakland, the same thing. That's what's driving the San Francisco politics of it. A lot of the um, conservative, highly reactionary voices are Asian. You're seeing that hinge in New York City as well. A lot of um, a lot of Asian folks started voting for Republican candidates. That's why the GOP did well during the primaries in New York City. Um, and I think that that's gonna be a bigger hinge nationally than people think. I just had a, a, a thought and I wonder if you could help me with it. I, I... I don't know the West Coast really at all. I, I was out in um, Oakland a couple of months ago for a conference, and uh, there was a there was an exposition at the Oakland Museum uh, that I was was particularly interested in. And I went and I was was struck how how um, I don't it, it, it's it, the museum didn't seem to represent the strength of a middle class or uh, upper class in, in in the area, which I'm sort of accustomed to equating with, with with museums in other parts of the country and obviously in Europe, where mm -hmm. you know that's yearly used as a good index of of how much money the government's spending and private the private sponsors are spending and so on. And the Oakland Museum, I was surprised, seemed uh, deteriorated to me. Yep. Is is there no countervailing force to all the things that you're talking about? from a powerful strong middle class regardless of of uh what political party they they belong to so oakland is interesting in that it always looks to san francisco um for cultural influence no matter how much people in oakland say they're proud of the where they're from and kind of will profess their allegiance to you know, their city and their, their support for it. The most influential museums in the region are still in San Francisco. 
And the biggest cultural driver in the East Bay is UC Berkeley, is Cal. So there's these kind of two things that are kind of pulling attention and money away from Oakland. The museum and the museum has some strength, has some strong aspects. Um, there's a very Dorothy Lang's photography is there. Um, there's a very good um, there's a good collection, although not large enough in my opinion of um, local artists. There's a very decent um, selection. The Pacific Rim stuff is very well represented, but I think that you know Oakland has been a place for a long time that people from the middle class have kind of fled from and unfortunately in recent years that has been followed out by housing pressures there's been a dot-com boom and bust there's been the great recession of 2008 that pushed a lot of people out the tech boom also pushed tons of people out too so there's been a lot of turnover in the past 20 30 years and i think what you're what you saw at the museum might be representative of that um there's another critique that you know my my girlfriend and her family have of the museum she's white but her family all married into um, Latino families. And that's mm -hmm. that the museum focuses too heavily. There's almost no Latino representation amongst the artists there, which is surprising because they're 28, they're 25% of the city. The city's population now is 28% white, 25% Latino, 20% African-American, down from 50% in 1990, and about 10% Asian. And it's a little bit stuck in the past. And there's a very like, I think that there are a lot of people in Oakland who haven't really realized how the city has changed very rapidly. And part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that so many of the recent arrivals are undocumented um, and are dirt poor. And they don't interact with institutions like that. And the institutions like the Oakland Museum, which until very recently was kind of walled off entirely from the city by a big concrete parapet. They've kind of knocked down one side by the Lake Merritt and opened it up. Um, it was just made to seem inaccessible to them. And this is a bigger critique of, um, of the city is that, you know, there's a lot of wealth there in the hills, but it's all the way above 580. It's all up in, um, in the leafy uh, districts of Montclair and up by Piedmont. And then there's the city of Piedmont inside Oakland, which is basically its own Beverly Hills. They use city services, they use the city sewers, the libraries, um, all that exists in Piedmont as a business is a gas station. They all work in Oakland, but they take their income tax home and take it to their own school district. And it's very white, very, you know, very affluent, and they have their own police force. So that's, I think what you see is that there's this little bit of balkanization that goes on in, um, in the Bay Area in terms, in the East Bay, particularly in terms of how income is distributed and how the wealthy have kind of created these enclaves for themselves, where they can separate themselves from the rest of society. And that leads to a little bit of social fracturing as well. Uh, fracturing. Yeah, living in Nashville and middle America, uh, a lot of the city governments look pretty good to me. Mm -hmm. and, and I've had hopeful fantasies about Gavin Newsom and the uh, Democrats. And uh, I would like to get your close up view of, of, of the Pelosi knew some machine and, and what they would do if if uh, they were uh, running things. Gavin's not bad. Um, I think he's he means well. Um, part of my issue with him is that he's very old San Francisco money. I mean, he, the Newsoms, the Pelosi's, the Gettys, they're all very tied in with each other. And that is 
the um, that's kind of the power structure you're looking at. I think that his broader policies are progressive to a degree, um, but they are not, he's not a risk taker um, in the way that the, like the state legislature in California actually in the past 10 years has rolled back a ton of the worst elements of the criminal justice um, system that were set in place in the 80s and 1990s. The three strikes law is gone. Um, there's no death penalty. They have decreased the prison population dramatically. At one point in 2006, it was maybe 200% full overcapacity. Now it's under capacity um, because they've changed around who can be on probation, um, who gets held in county jail for shorter sentences, how long you get held. That happened because of the legislature, not because of Jerry Brown or Gavin, who was his lieutenant governor. Um, I think he can be pushed to the left. I don't think he can be pushed to the, I think that Biden probably set a better example for the Dems than anybody else in terms of tacking left and just being intelligent about it. Um, he actually is far to the left of what I expected him to be. And that is very interesting to see. Yes. One thing about Gavin is that he's very good. All of the Californian politicians are very intelligent on climate change, um, adaptation, and economic policy. And California is going to be the world's fourth biggest economy probably tomorrow if it hasn't become that already. So it's, he's, he probably is the best candidate for vice president, but you're not going to be able to take an African woman, American woman down from vice president and put a white man in her place at this point. It's not, it's not feasible. So either he'll run to primary Biden or he'll stay, sit back and wait his turn. Mm -hmm. Liz. Uh, I was taken with your comment about um, African-Americans going down from uh, 50 percent to 25 percent of the population and I'm wondering 20 20, 20. Uh, what are the drivers of that uh, what are the implications of that what are your thoughts about that two things that's happened um, that's a 25 year trend and it's accelerated um, housing price gun violence Oakland is still an incredibly violent place and most of the, vi the victims of gun violence are African-American or Latino you know, you can sell your house for a lot more money. Um, the taxes are pretty high. You get part, you get hit with parcel taxes in order to pay for schools and everything else. Um, so you, it's not cheap to live in a, in the Bay Area. And just, you know, the cops also drove people out as well too, because it's just such a difficult place to live and um, you don't want to be racially profiled. Um, but then all, you know, it's, it's very difficult to kind of track these things too, because, you, the families will come and go. Some of the people will, and also, frankly, schools. The schools in Oakland are awful. They're yeah. not awful, and they have not improved. They've down. They've fallen into a really bad kind of spiral. Um, I'd say the kids are probably a year, like two years behind reading level. The graduation rates are poor. Um, there are charter schools all over the place, and they don't serve their kids well. Um, so it's a number of factors. Where, where have those families gone? Do you have an idea? Central Valley, um, Stockton, Tracy, um, Brent, and then over into Eastern Contra Costa County, um, Brentwood, Antioch, Oakley, um, mm -hmm. Bay Point, Pittsburgh. And all these cities are, I mean, unfortunately, the same problems follow people out there. The same feuds follow people out there. You know, there are gangs from San Francisco and Oakland that are still beefing out in Brentwood and, and Pittsburgh. And are taking shots at each other on freeway um, freeway 80 and highway four um and 
those police forces out there and Brent, I mean, the Antioch Police Department's under an FBI investigation for basically what the Oakland Police Department did in 2000 for racial profiling, excessive force, all that stuff. I'm um, going to uh, ask one more question, which is I have relatives who live up above 580, um, and it's clear that their kids are going to go to a, quote, nice elementary school. It'll be a public elementary school. And I, yep. I've, I've never quite understood why in any school system, some schools don't seem to have the resources that other schools do. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that. Um, that has to do with the district and how the district wants to retain certain families um, and not rock the boat. I mean, they don't bus kids anymore. They used to. Um, and, and I think they dealt away with that before my time. Um, and I also, you know, a lot of these schools too have teacher, have, um, parent associations that are very strong and raise a lot of money for their schools specifically and for their teachers. Mm -hmm. It's a constant point of conflict in the Bay Area. And the, the school board is just one of the best beats, in my opinion, to be on because it, you can cut through so much so quickly. Um, I've always been envious of education reporters. Our schools, our schools are funded by tax base, not by other systems. If you compare us with, say, Canada, yeah. Wherever there's uh, governmental funding that evens things out. So if you're in an area with a very low tax base, you got rotten schools. So you poor communities get bad schools, poorly funded schools. But the problem is that Oakland has still has a tax base, and the school di the school district is so mismanaged that they just basically light money on. They have yeah. I mean that's that's part of the problem too. Um, it's not just Oakland that has that issue. San Francisco and Los Angeles, Los Angeles especially, has a huge problem with that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, Ali, thank you so much for coming on. It's really been quite interesting. Thank you so much for this time. Um, I'm happy to come back and speak with you about Turkey, more about California, more about Oakland. Great. Whatever oh, you want. Right, great. Happy to do this. I, I love doing these these conversations. They're yeah. Feels good to talk to people and just kind of bounce this stuff off off um, yeah. folks who such right. different backgrounds and do you have turkish citizenship hell no no good <laughs> no good. I, have, I have a passport otherwise they with, might arrest you <laughs> i have a blue passport with an eagle on it that makes yeah. sure that the first amendment applies to me wherever i go ah yeah i'm, under, I'm a turkish citizen i'm subject to turkish laws and right. as a reporter, that's the last thing you want as a reporter <laughs> would reporters here would kill for an american who are you gonna say cindy no, I was saying also the draft. I remember our people, yeah. you know, with dual citizenship who had to, you know, serve service. the draft, even though they didn't speak any Turkish, they'd grown up in England or wherever. Yeah. 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 Object to the draft. Compulsory service is not a great thing. And, you know, I know quite a few people who are in prison for nothing over here. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. All, all right. Thank you so me. much. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. It has been a great talking to you all. Enjoy your day. That was Ali Winston. His new book is titled, The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org, every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.